You're listening to Radio Ed, a University of Denver podcast. We're your hosts, Nicole Militello, Lauren Fultenberg, and I'm Alyssa Hurst. Every other week, I dutifully wheel out my recycling bin, which I fill twice as often as my trash can, and set it on the curb for pickup. The cans, paper, and plastic I've amassed make their way into a facility for sorting and out of my mind. I refuse straws from my local coffee shop in favor of a reusable option, and I always bring my own bags to the grocery store so I never have to use plastic ones. These small actions, I'm told, add up to an impact, one that makes me feel like I'm helping shift the tides of climate change and lessening the impact of humans on the natural world. And yet despite our growing interest in sustainability, I still came across a news article last week detailing the threat of microplastics in our air swirling around the earth. As climate change continues to threaten our very existence and the footprint of humanity continues to encroach on the animals, water, plants, and air we share space with, we decided to focus in on the issue of plastics with assistant professor Jack Buffington, whose work in supply chain management has driven him to explore solutions to our plastic problem. Can you tell us a little bit about the history of our use of plastics when it became this super ubiquitous material that we use in every grocery store and all of our packaging? Yeah, yeah. So man has always sought these materials to advance, you know, how we live our lives. And uh, plastic is a polymer. Um, there's plastic, you know, in your in your cells. Um, organic plastics, of course. There's um, polymers in trees and animals. And in humans, for for thousands of years, have been using animals and trees for their materials. You know, whether it's um, elephant tusks or shells or, you know, tree sap to turn into rubber. Um, and then, you know, with the advancement of fossil fuels, all of a sudden plastic became possible because plastic is simply made out of fossil fuels. Um, and so this became actually, believe it or not, um, a sustainable way of, you know, a, you know, eliminating the overforestation and, and harvesting of animals. So in the 20th century is really when it became uh ubiquitous, as you mentioned, and um, to the point today where, as you mentioned, it's everywhere. And the reason why is because it's a material that has um, a near infinite source of um, feedstock, which is fossil fuels. It's also nearly infinite um, variable. You can create plastic, which is a, a stretchy jacket. It can be a styrofoam cooler. It can be just about anything, and it's it's very, very cheap. Um, so. This became something that became a, a huge part of, of our development. And to, today, plastic has separated itself from other materials in that not only is it a noun, but it's also a verb and an adjective. And the reason why it's a verb is because you take these organic materials and you polymerize them. And by polymerizing organic materials, you basically make them nature-proof, which is much different than wood and other materials that we have in nature. Um, and I also consider it to be an adjective because it become, it's become pretty much a part of our culture. I think that is such an interesting point that plastic was a sustainable option when it first came around. That is truly wild to think about. Um, and that kind of leads me to my next question, which is, when did we start to realize the environmental impacts of plastics? Was there some point of recognition later on? Yeah, so since the 1950s, plastic has grown... Uh, about eight and a half percent average year over year. Um, and so you can imagine back in the 50s, there was only maybe like 1.5 million tons of plastic. Today, annual production is over 360 million tons. So the answer is 
probably when people started to see it on the beaches, um, when people started to hear about, you know, things happening in the ocean. But in reality, um, most people are not very much aware of the problem to the same extent that they are with uh, climate change or some of the other problems we have with the environment. So I would even say today it's very much of a misunderstood topic. Interesting. Can you talk a little bit about where you think that misunderstanding lies? Um, I think it's because the plastic bottle or, um, you know, your plastic phone case seems so harmless. And if you just think about that single item by itself, it's harmless. But when you think about the magnitude of 360 million tons of it all over the world in many different forms and a lot of forms in microplastics that you can't see, um, that's where it's really harmful. So I want to talk a little bit about kind of the, the plus side of plastic, the benefits of plastics, because you have mentioned before that, that we use them in things like poverty reduction and, and that sort of thing. So can you tell us a little bit about that upside and, and where we get benefits from plastics? Um, the, the absolute worst thing for the environment is extreme poverty. Now, one thing that's happened that's been great over the last couple decades is hundreds of millions, um, if not billions of people have been pulled out of poverty. And there's a lot of reasons for why that has happened. A lot of it has to do with supply chains that are, you know, what I work on and what I study and teach. Um, plastics had a big part of that. So if you think about it, um, clean water, um, available food, you know, in some places around the world, there's not clean water, there's not food production that's sufficient, there's not pharmaceuticals and um, healthcare that's available, that plastic has been able to address those problems by offering, um, you know, affordable staples to the people in their lives. So then on the flip side of that, of course, we've already talked a little bit about some of the scary negative impacts of plastics. Um, some of the ones you've mentioned before, 70% of plastic we produce is still lying in waste. Um, we have plastic even in the most remote corners of the earth, like Mount Everest. By 2050, there will be more plastic in the ocean than fish. So what does that, what does that really mean for the, the health of our planet? Yeah, so from a scientific standpoint, it's very difficult to... Um, to study or to prove in some sort of causal relationship, the impact that plastic has on the planet. Um, but from a material flow standpoint, from a supply chain standpoint, it's very easy to see. Um, so the problems with plastic are shown in different ways. One of them is about 10 million tons of plastic go into the ocean every year. Now, that seems to be a really big problem, but from how we look at things from a supply chain standpoint, the bigger problem isn't the 10 million, it's the 350 million that isn't reused, right? Um, but nonetheless, the 10 million tons of plastic that go in the ocean are almost entirely from developing nations that don't have sufficient waste management systems. You know, there's studies that have shown that, you know, uh, when, they, when they test the umbilical cords of newborns, they can trace anywhere from 60 to almost 300 specific chemicals in their in their bloodstream right when they're born, right? So these are chemicals, um, plastics, and the additives that are used to make plastics. Um, these are unnatural to, to ecosystems and to our bodies. And um, so you have to believe, even though these are not situations that you can do a cause and effect, simply because it's so ubiquitous, it's difficult to you know, isolate a circumstance to determine what the problem is. 
it's pretty clear if um, plastic is growing at an eight and a half percent and being recycled at a seven percent and 360 million tons are being, you know, strewn all over the planet, um, that you're going to have problems with that. It certainly has an impact on, you know, our water systems. They do tests on municipal water systems. 94% um, of tap water has traces of plastic in it. Um, and, you know, there was a study that was done in Colorado, I think a couple of years ago, where they put buckets out. The U.S. Ge Geological Service did a um, study and they were, they were uh, trying to test for something else, but they actually um, found uh, traces of plastic in each of these rain samples. And so this is, this is coming from the sky. You know, this isn't something that was a fact of, you know, somebody littering on the ground. So, you know, this is a significant problem um, to the extent that we don't understand as well as we need to in regards to, um, you know, public health as well as the environment. And kind of to, to build off of that a little bit, we've all seen these videos of turtles with a straw in their nose or pelicans wrapped up in plastic netting. Um, so I'd love to talk a little bit about animals. So what is the true extent of that problem and, and what impact can it really have on, on these animals that we share the world with? The picture that, that really, you know, is, is really emotional for people is when they see the turtle that's caught in plastic or it's through their nose or you know, a seahorse that's using a straw for balance. Um, but the, the bigger problem is the uh, microplastics that exist in the ocean. So when you hear these stories of these big gyres of plastic, people think that, you know, you're going to go in the middle of the ocean and you can see just like a bunch of like, you know, straws and, and soda bottles and such, but that's not what you see. What, what the problem is, is really what you don't see, right? And so it's, you can imagine that, you know, these these places are in the middle of nowhere. And so this plastic has gone from a coastline to these five gyres all around the world. The most dangerous part about plastic that people aren't aware of is it's not necessarily the polymer, you know, like uh, PET. So it's, it's not the polymer that's really the most dangerous part, it's the additives. You know, it's the BPA um, that you've heard of in the, in the water bottles, which by the way, I think they tested about 95% of adults have BPA in their blood. So the plastic slimes its way through the ocean and these additives are the smaller molecules. So they're easier to release. And so these molecules will attach to things that fish will eat, right? And so, you know, they will ingest um, these, these chemicals just like these chemicals are in our bodies. And um, that is having an impact on their health, of course, because you're not, they're not intended to, to um, consume synthetic materials. Um, there is no question that, you know, to us and, and every other animal, these are um, synthetic materials that are not a part of nature. And so obviously our bodies have not been um, developed and evolved to, to ingest them. So what, what could that mean for, for people? When I wrote a book on plastic, I tried to be really careful on this topic because, I mean, there's all kinds of possibilities which are impossible to prove. Um, but there, there have been some researchers who have seen these relationships, whether it's cancer or endocrine disruption or ADHD or, you know, a variety of things that are related to something um, that that probably has to do with all of these synthetic materials that are in our, in our world. 
And the biggest problem is that these materials, um, these chemicals are used in a manner that um, number one is not disclosed. So, you know, if you buy a, a plastic toy for your kid, uh, you don't know uh, what plastic it is. You don't know what sort of additives are included in it. So, you know, if your kid chews on it, you don't know what material could be leached. And then um, the, way, the way things work with the EPA is that um, uh, chemicals are taken off the market once they're proven harmful, but they're not tested to be safe like the vaccine is. So um, it's almost impossible to keep track of what's happening, especially given the fact that there's so many of them. And like I said, you don't know which one of these chemicals had what sort of effect. So I think there are some, um, there are some signs when it comes to human health that while you can't create a causal relationship between what's happening, I think you certainly could look at it from a correlation standpoint, given the high increase of plastics in some of these challenges that we're facing in human and public health. It's really interesting. I'm curious if you think there's any parallels or possible parallels in the future between um, plastics and like cigarette smoking, something that at some point someone thought was harmless and didn't really fully understand. And then now, years later, we know how harmful it can be. Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I actually wrestled with that a little bit in my book. Um, but the difference, of course, is that, I mean, there are exceptions with secondhand smoke, but for the most part, when you smoke cigarettes, you're an active participant. So what's interesting is even if you completely disable plastic from your life, you're still subject to water, you're subject to food, um, you're subject to a lot of different things. Um, and then the other thing is the cigarettes, remember I mentioned that, that um, cigarettes would be classified as a noun and plas plastic really is a noun, a verb and an adjective. And so it's so ubiquitous um, that it would be, I mean, as, as difficult as it was to, to, to suggest liability to big tobacco and all that would be doubly as hard when it comes to plastic. I want to talk a little bit about recycling um, because that's something, you know, that we think we're doing to make a huge dent in the problem of, of plastics. And you mentioned in your book that only 7% of our plastics are actually recycled. Um, and then, of course, we have this new phenomenon that people are sort of starting to talk about now called wish cycling, where we put things in the recycling bin because we really hope that they're going to be recyclable, but we don't actually know <laughs> if they are. Um, so can you speak a little bit to the recycling process and how effective it actually is in combating this problem? The problem with plastic is that it's not worth anything to be recycled. So this concept that you call wish cycling is actually counterproductive to the whole process because actually what you're doing is you're making it more expensive to process the things that have value, which is aluminum cans. Um, the reason why plastic is not recyclable is because it wasn't designed to be recyclable. It was designed to be nature proof. You know, like an aluminum can is easy to melt down and reform. So it has a high yield rate where plastic has a very low yield rate um, in how we currently recycle, which is called mechanical recycling. It has a higher yield rate with something called chemical recycling. And that's viable, but we have to change the way the supply chains work but the biggest problem we have is the fact that oil prices are so low. So it's very difficult for recycled plastic to compete against new plastic from our oil system when the price of oil is, is so competitive, especially now in the United States where we have so much natural gas. 
Interesting. So do you have a sense of when, you know, I take my recycling bin and I put it out for the recycling people and they come and pick it up? Like how much of that is actually being recycled? Mm-hmm. How much of it does it just get thrown away? Do you, do you know uh, what that looks like? Yeah, yeah. Um, I laugh about this because I was at a conference um, and I won't name the, the waste management company that was that was speaking with me, but they acknowledged that over 50% of what you put in your bin is thrown away. So of what you put in your bin, um, aluminum cans are infinitely recyclable. Um, every aluminum can that's ever been produced should be reused. Um, it has infinite life and it should last forever. And it's actually very um, cost effective to recycle aluminum because of the, the uh, decrease in energy to reform it. Glass bottles are about the same as uh, plastic. Paper um, from, a, from a personal standpoint is not, commercial paper is. Um, you have two, two types of plastic that are um, about 20%, which is the plastic bottle, which is PET. And then you have um, the high density polyethylene bottle, which is like the, um, the, the detergent bottle, you know, or like the, the milk carton. And that's about 20% as well. And then all the rest of the plastics are below 10%, if not below 1%. So um, what happened is, is that waste management companies realize that they can't make money on it. So they just commingle it and they charge you because they feel like you, um, you want to do it, but they make all their money on um, landfilling. They don't make their money on recycling. So that's not to say, of course, that we shouldn't be recycling, right? We should recycle. Um, but my concern with recycling is, is that it makes people feel good about what they're doing. My concern with that is it makes people feel like we've solved the problem. And all it has done is incrementally improve things. So instead of recycling rates being at 7%, they could be at 10%. What we need is radical disruptive innovation that's going to get it to 90%, not incremental that's going to get it to 9%. What would that radical transformation look like in your eyes? Yeah, so there's two elements that are going to make the changes. One of them is the types of materials that we use. So you recall I mentioned that um, our plastic today was not designed to be reused. So um, what's really exciting, and I'm working with some material scientists who are working on this, is coming up with new materials that will have a higher yield rate that'll be cheaper to recycle. But the second part of that is we have to change how our supply chains work because Um, These materials are so precarious from an economic standpoint that if you try to send them all to some big location that's far away, the transportation costs will kill the economic value. So what I'm proposing is a community-based supply chain approach to where you consume, where you use the plastic, is where you'll recycle it. The other advantage of that is it it has a significant economic benefit to it And you can imagine in some of our inner cities and uh, developing nations that are poor because they're resource poor, um, how they could use their waste to improve their economy is a fantastic uh, synergy to make, you know, the environment and the economy both work at the same time. That's a great example of what everyday people can can be doing here and and how you could start working there. but, but I want to ask you, do these anti-straw campaigns and plastic bag bans work? Do they make any kind of impact? Um, they do, but the problem I, I have is that they suck all the oxygen out of the air. Um, I mean, for example, if, if, you, if you felt like your house was on fire, would you worry that your sink was on and it was flooding your bathtub, you know? 
you wouldn't worry about that. And I think that's the problem is that there's a lot of people who are well-intended and um, these, these should make a slight difference. But if you do the math on how much plastic and how many synthetic chemicals are in the environment, we need something that's much bigger than, than what's being proposed. Sure. So I'd love to talk about that a little bit more because that kind of goes to this point of whose responsibility is it to start working on this problem? Um, is it the consumers or the businesses or both some sort of partnership? How does the supply chain factor in? What does that look like? Yeah, so let's use other examples of what's happening in the environment to answer that question. So, um, so energy and um, you know, and transportation um, that was driven by some pioneer, some innovator who came up with this idea um, that it can work. But the only way the business model worked is if the car was as good um, at a similar price, right? And another example I come up with is. Another problem we have with the environment is this whole problem with the meat system, you know, with the damage that um, the meat industry is doing to the environment, the, the large number of antibiotics that are used through the meat system that could cripple the medical system. And so there's innovations that are happening in this space. It's not being driven by consumers, it's being driven by innovators. And the public will adopt those programs when the, the alternative meats taste the same or better and the cost is the same or better. And it's the same thing with plastic. We can't expect that um, consumers are gonna pay 30% more for a plastic bottle or whatever. Um, we need to come up with supply chains and materials that provide the same product at the same or less price. So you also can't expect Coke and Pepsi to address this problem because the consumers are asking for cheap bottles. So it's gotta be some innovator who comes forward that looks at materials and supply chains differently. And when that happens, things will change. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, I want to kind of go back to something that you touched on a tiny bit earlier, which is COVID-19 and how this pandemic has affected our use of plastics or, or has changed the situation with our plastics where maybe we're making some incremental progress. Yeah, it took all the air out of the balloon. In fact, like I mentioned, um, I was going to go to Asia with some researchers and we were going to talk to some governments about these innovative, disruptive ideas of closed loop systems, community-based systems. Um, and then the pandemic happens and um, restaurants, in order to stay in business, have to use single-use plastic for takeout containers. Um, all the testing kits that we have all over the country, vaccinations, um, you know, people ordering from Amazon instead of going into a store. So, um, and actually even beyond that is the recycling system or the recycling uh, companies themselves were halted because there was a concern of sorting these materials and being contaminated with COVID. So pretty much the, the, the bottom fell out when it came to recycling. And I think um, this kind of proves the point that I've been saying for a while is you can't make a non-economic argument to save the environment because what's going to happen is, is that you're going to get into a pandemic like this and people are just going to focus on, on the economy. So you have to have a situation where what's good for the environment is good for the economy and then all of a sudden it's going to work. And, but COVID is a good example of just not a lot of people concerned about it right now given what's happening. 
So on a slightly more positive note, um, <laughs> what are what are some of the innovative ways that you've seen some people try to start effectively dealing with this problem? And and I guess are there are there ways that people are starting to in in a meaningful way? Yeah, actually, I'm excited about a couple things. One of them is I think there's better collaboration between uh, the nonprofits that are focused on the environment and industry. So I think companies like Coke and Pepsi and Dow Chemical are having more conversations with um, you know, the environmentalists to, to figure out how to solve the problem. And we're seeing the same thing on the meat side, which I think is fantastic. Um, the good news is they're starting to be funding in new materials. Um, my concern with the new materials, and this is where I get involved a lot in this research, is you can't create a new material that doesn't work for a supply chain. Um, because the problem with plastic isn't the one bottle. It's the 360 million tons or the 1 billion bottles a day that go out in the environment. So you have to create a material that works with the supply chain so that when somebody's done using it, the system will be able to create this closed loop system. And the big fallacy with closed loop systems is people, too many people think it has only to do with the material. Whereas the truth of the matter is the closed loop system is primarily a function of the overall supply chain. And so, when these materials are created, there needs to be a supply chain that closes the loop. And I think the exciting part is, is that you're starting to get an understanding of how this is possible. So I have a lot of excitement. I just don't think it's happening fast enough. So in a previous story with the DU Newsroom, you spoke about being hopeful about this problem. Um, so where does your optimism come from? And indeed, do you, are you still feeling optimistic about it a couple of years later? Yeah, um, what I'm excited about is the first step in solving a problem is understanding what the problem is. And I think, you know, when I initially got involved in this research, everybody just like shook their fist at the consumer and said, you know, you're not putting your plastic bottles in the container. You're a bad person. And, you know, to your point, then the waste management system just throws most of that away anyway. Where I think today where I feel more um, optimistic about is there's a better appreciation of the problem. Now, the challenge is, is that what scares people is the problem is larger than what they thought. It's simple if you suggest the problem is just throwing your plastic in a bin. It's much more difficult to understand that it has to do with this big global supply chain system that, that um, moves goods around the world so seamlessly. From that recognition, I see starting to see cooperation. And once there's cooperation between public and private partnerships, there's funding. And once there's funding, comes innovators and when comes innovators comes solutions. You just mentioned sort of that it's not happening fast enough and I'm curious what the timeline looks like in your in your view. And I think about you know the the energy and the electric cars and the uh, sustainable grid which I think is ahead of the is ahead of the process when it comes to plastic and I think you're starting to see a rapid escalation towards solving the problem. And I think that's the way it's going to be is it's going to seem like it's hopeless. And then all of a sudden things are just going to be rapidly changing in the right space. And so that's where I thought 10 years. Um, but I will also tell you that that was before COVID. So, um, so I'm hopeful, but maybe a little bit concerned about the time. Um, where, where do plastics fit in in the larger conversation around climate change? So I think, I think that's a good question is that it really doesn't directly tie to climate change, but it does 
tied to um, you know this this whole way, this whole industrial way that we live our lives. And you know, somebody would say, "Well, you're in supply chain. You're the problem." And I would say, "Yeah." But the people who cause the problem are the ones who can solve it because we best understand how it works. So I tell my students, I say, you're officially problem solvers. The first step is understanding what problem we need to solve for. Is the problem we're trying to solve for to, to make more and cheaper stuff? Or is the problem we're trying to solve for to create a more sustainable planet um, that we can balance you know, the economy and the environment over generations? And I think that's something noble that I think is a cause to action. To learn more about the plastic problem and Jack Buffington's book, Peak Plastic, The Rise or Fall of Our Synthetic World, visit our show notes at du.edu slash radioed. Tamara Chapman is our managing editor. James Swearingen arranged our theme. I'm Alyssa Hurst, today's host and Radio Ed's executive producer. This is Radio Ed.